up and going. Good to see Hannah here. She's um, feeling heaps better from where I spoke to James a few weeks ago. So fantastic to see God's grace in uh, helping and sustaining and keeping her. So uh, really encouraged to see today, Hannah, as we gather together. Okay, Jeremiah. We have this book that's been written for us two and a half thousand years ago. And it may be easy for some of us possibly to say, what could this book tell us today that's two and a half thousand years old? It's written so long ago, how could it possibly help us in today's culture that's moved on so far since then? The book of Jeremiah will help us in many ways, many ways. Firstly, it will help us to see God. God will be revealed right through Jeremiah and how he operates and who he is will come through Jeremiah. Secondly, we will see us, that is you and I, uh, through the life of Jeremiah, also through the lives of the Israelites at this time, particularly uh, the tribe of Judah. And what we're also going to see is a lot of God's justice in Jeremiah. If you have read through it a few times, it can look like it's a fairly um, sort of negative book in some sense because there's a lot of God's judgment, a lot of God's justice there on the rebellious nature of Israel at the time, particularly Judah, were repeatedly rejecting God's warnings to them of their wayward living and their injustice towards others. Time after time, uh, God sends Jeremiah to them to remind them of the covenant that they had made with him in the wilderness. And Jeremiah also was calling out their sinful living before God. God warns them that he will have to act in justice unless they turn from their sinful ways. <coughs> There's quite a bit of that through Jeremiah. Not only that, though, we will also see God's grace in action as well. God will patiently wait upon Judah and he will, he will consistently come and urge them, return, 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 God will say many, many times. And we're told in the Bible that God is very slow to holy anger. It's right anger and it's proper anger, but he's slow in getting to there because he urges them in grace to return to him. And we'll see lots of that in Jeremiah as well. To help us, though, with Jeremiah, we need to actually get some context of what this book is all about or the situation and the circumstances around it. Because if you don't know the circumstances or the background or the situation, it's really hard to understand why is Jeremiah writing the way he's writing. So the context is really, really important. Jeremiah is writing when Israel or Judah is at a very low ebb in their history. If we trace it back in the, in the sense of the nation of Israel, God has raised up a people of uh, from a, a nation of people from Abraham, and, and promising him. Sorry, I'll get this right. God has raised up a nation of people from Abraham, promising him that kings would come from him eventually. This is the nation of Israel coming from Abraham. This nation then goes into captivity in Egypt for nearly four hundred years. Then God raises up Moses to lead them out of captivity and out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land of Canaan. It's here in the wilderness that God meets face to face with Moses and gives him the covenant, the agreement, the promise that Israel is to live by as God's chosen people. I've chosen you and called you out. Here's how I want you to live as my chosen people. In the land of Canaan, uh, God raises up a king in David. They've been there for quite a few years and a king is chosen and raised up and it's King David. He's a good king who establishes a godly kingdom that worships God as they should, as God's people. God makes another covenant or promise with David telling him that he will produce a king from David's line who will reign forever and his kingdom will know no end. Ultimately, we do find that in Jesus Christ. But that's the promise 
that God has given to David. At this particular time, at that stage there with King David, Israel is at its, I guess, its highest point. You might call it its zenith. It's absolute maximum place of loving God and serving him as a people. But from sort of King David onwards, it's a downhill decline as you read through the Bible. Probably starting with David's son, King Solomon, things begin to slowly but surely degenerate. Israel declines year by year, which is like for them one step forward, but two steps backwards. One step forward, two steps backwards. It's just a slow decline for Israel from that point on. It's now nearly uh, 300 years since King David has set up the kingdom and now Israel, in Jeremiah's time, has capitulated or has absolutely crashed to ruin because of the consistent rejection and rebellion towards God. Religious or spiritual life is really nothing more for the Israelites at this particular time than just form and ritual. That's all that is. It's just form and ritual. They've generally become like all the other nations that are surrounding about them at this particular time and they have abandoned the true devotion and worship of God. They've capitulated down to this very uh, form and ritual type of religion. Israel's only interested in God as long as they can get something out of him that will suit them for that occasion. That's where Israel is at that particular time. Alongside this... There are like three world superpowers. Yes, we have world superpowers today, but back then it was no different. There are three world superpowers who are consistently jostling for position to control the known world at that time. It's Assyria, it's Babylon, and it's Egypt. And all of these superpowers at various times have battled against each other and have also battled against Israel as well. Currently, the start of the book... The Assyrians are besieging Israel. They are there, and what they used to do back then was come and siege the whole town until they starved them of water and food, and then we'd go and invade them. So at this point in time, Assyria is besieging uh, Israel. But Assyria is on the verge of total collapse. And what will happen next is Babylon is about to rise up, and it will come in, and it will besiege and become the dominant power of the world, and it will besiege Israel and invade them, causing mayhem and destruction on every front. Uh, Israel, though, is living in a false sense of security, even while all this is going on. They believe that they've got God in their back pocket... And ready to pull him out whenever they need him. Just like you might have a genie in a bottle. Just give the bottle a bit of a rub and out pops genie. Get you out of trouble. Then he goes back in the bottle again. That's how they think God is. Even when Babylon is right on the doors, as it were, besieging uh, Jerusalem and knocking on the door to say, hey, we're coming to uh, sack this place. Israel still thinks, no, no, it's all good. God will look after us. Even at that point, they're living in a false sense of security. Jeremiah, as we'll see in this book as well, is deeply loyal to God. Deeply loyal to God. He actually was born shortly before Josiah. If you're familiar with some of the kings of the Bible, Josiah was a great king in the Bible. He was born shortly before Josiah uh, began to reign. So he was raised in a very, very godly way uh, through Jeremiah's, uh, through Josiah's reign. He doesn't want to see Israel go down the Google. He loves the nation and he loves God. Jeremiah wants God to be exalted amongst the people. And for them to turn back to the one true God and worship and love and uh, uh, exalt his name. 
knowing that if they do that, Jeremiah knows that, God, that Israel will find true joy and peace that they've been longing for if they would just return back to God. That sets a long scene there for Jeremiah. That's what's happening. Spiritual decline, superpowers at their door, and they're living in a false sense of security while all this is happening and everything's good. They're crying, peace, peace, when there is really no peace for Israel at this time. Okay, so today we're going to see the call of Jeremiah. God calls him. Then we're going to see how, uh, meet Jeremiah himself as well, a bit, a bit more detail on him. And then we're going to look at God's message or ministry for Jeremiah as he takes this into the nations over these next 40 years of Jeremiah's life. So initially here, we're going to look at God's call for Jeremiah. And we get a glimpse of that, of God sovereignly calling or electing or choosing Jeremiah to carry out his purposes that he's chosen for Jeremiah. If you look in verses 4 and 5, uh, you'll see that. Uh, Verses 4 and 5, we have there, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now there's a whole range of things you could say right in that text, looking at that right there. It tells us that God creates and forms life in the womb. God's the one who forms life in the womb. A fetus is a human life right at the point of conception. And in the mind of God, he knows our life even before we are conceived. Before we are conceived, it's already planned out in God's mind what our life is all about. God is intricately involved at every stage of our life. We're not just sort of taking God by surprise when we're born. It's all um, a point here where God knows exactly what has taken place. But there's a real strong standout point here as I think about this, and that is that God divinely chooses or elects people to carry out his sovereign purposes. It says there, before you were born, Jeremiah, I consecrated you. Before you were born, I have chosen you and set you apart. I've called you to do this. I've put this purpose in place. God knows exactly what he's doing and knows exactly how he's going to carry it out. And remarkably, God sovereignly chooses to use us to carry out his purposes. That's what he's doing with Jeremiah. I've consecrated you for this task. This is no new thing that God has done in the sense of that he's calling people out and choosing people for his purpose. God's been doing this right through the beginning of time, right throughout the Bible we see God doing that. We can go back to Abraham. We mentioned that before. God called or chose Abraham out of relative obscurity. Abraham's just following around the countryside with his father, Terah, and then God calls Abraham and says, hey, Abraham, come follow me and I'll take you to a country. I'll show you. That's about the extent of the call that Abraham gets from God. And Abraham leaves his family, his friends, and takes his own family with him and follows God to this country. He doesn't know where he's going to at that initial stage. God's been doing that and it's right through the Bible, repeating it time and time again. And he's doing the same thing here again with Jeremiah. He's calling him out for a purpose. Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, you were bo- before you were born, you are called or chosen for a plan and a purpose that I have determined. There are no accidents in life when it comes to birth. There are no accidents. Nobody is a mistake between mum and dad when they didn't want any more children. Often you'll hear, oh, it was an accident. There's no accidents with God. 
No accidents with God. And there's no accidents also between a one-night stand of lust and passion between two lovers, and they didn't really intend for a child to be born. There are no accidents in God whatsoever. We are all born with value, dignity, and respect. We're not just a blob that is a nuisance in life that has no purpose. And unfortunately, in the world we live in today, quickly aborts those things which they call nuisances. You may have been told that, but that isn't how God sees anybody whatsoever. God has a purpose and a plan for every single human being. Now, it won't always be perhaps as specific as Jeremiah's here in this, and his purpose that God's called him for, but we all have the unique purpose of honouring and glorifying God with our lives to reflect his glory back into this world. But for Jeremiah, God has called him, chosen him, and called him to be a prophet. He says, I've appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. You might be asking here, well, what's a prophet? If this is the role that uh, Jeremiah is going to fill out here or he's being called for, what is a prophet? Simply to explain this is that Jeremiah is called to be a spokesman for God. He's come to be God's mouthpiece, as it were, to the world. Jeremiah is called upon by God to declare the words to the people around about him that God has given to him to declare. God chooses to use human vessels to declare his word. We have the, the, the final and declared word in the Bible here and now, but back in Jeremiah's day, God chose to use prophets and to declare his word that way. So whatever God tells Jeremiah, he is to tell the people exactly what he's heard from God. Don't delude it. Don't change it up. Exactly as I tell you, God says, deliver this to the people. So let's summarise there. Before Jeremiah is born, God has sovereignly chosen him, called him, elected him uniquely to be his spokesperson or spokesman to the nations of the world. That's Jeremiah's call. How's Jeremiah going to react to this calling? How's he going to respond? You might think in one way, he's over the moon about representing God. And who wouldn't want to be having that privilege? I mean, who can actually say, I am representing God in that sense, in that very special sense? And in today's terms, if you had a LinkedIn profile, what would you like to put on there? Prophet of God might look very well on your LinkedIn profile to some extent. You might think that, but actually Jeremiah isn't so sure about this calling. If you look in verse 6, he says something different. Verse 6, Jeremiah responds, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak from only a youth. God, I think you've made a mistake. God, I think you've got the wrong man here. I think you should be looking at that guy up the road. Look, look, Lord, I don't even know how to speak. I can't possibly get those words out that you want me to say. I'll be a mess in front of the people. Nothing will come out right, Lord. You've got the wrong guy. You need to talk to that guy because I know he's really gifted in this sort of thing. That's what Jeremiah's thinking at this time. You've got the wrong guy. I'm not up for this. You know, it's not that unusual response for us to make sometimes towards God when he may lead us into something. It may not be specifically an upfront public ministry that Jeremiah's got there, but it could be anything. We think, oh, no, God, I couldn't possibly do that. Fear and failure sometimes are very rampant in our lives, in our communities in many respects. We just don't feel we could do these things. Now, I know on the opposite end, some people are super overconfident, but others often fear will grip our lives. 
God, I couldn't possibly serve you in the way you're leading me now. I'm just not up for that. Here's the beauty of God. He often chooses what seems like a wrong fit in human eyes. God often chooses what seems like a wrong fit in human eyes to accomplish his purposes. God's been doing that millions of times through history. Hudson Taylor, if anybody's familiar with him, he led the China Inland Mission in the 1800s. And he said this, when God was looking for someone to lead this mission, that is the China Inland Mission, he was looking for the weakest, shyest and most unable person he could find. And Hudson Taylor says, I was the perfect candidate. Hudson Taylor goes on, weak, shy and unable to do our mighty work in China and through the China Inland Mission. God takes sometimes the most seemingly unfit people to use for his purposes through the world. This is what God does. In his sovereignty and his design, his purposes are carried out through human vessels and human instruments. And God glorifies himself through that. And as we carry out those purposes, we experience... Uh, great understandings of who God is and experience his presence in our lives even through that weakness. And it's all for God's glory. God responds to Jeremiah here as Jeremiah says, hey, I got, you got the wrong guy. God says this in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. God graciously corrects Jeremiah here. Or maybe mildly rebukes him, depending how you want to see this. Don't say I'm only a youth, Jeremiah, God says. Don't say that. Now you might be thinking, well, how old is Jeremiah? Uh, In the terms of, of Hebrew there, you can be a youth right up to the age of 20. Really from 20 onwards when you're sort of counted then, perhaps as fit for the priesthood. So he could have been 18 or 19 years old. So friends, we've actually got to believe this here about God, that we are never too young to obey God's calling and carry out his mission um, for our, in our lives for his glory. We are never too young for that. Don't ever shut out the Holy Spirit's calling upon your life and say, no, I'm just too young. I'm just too young. Another story about youth. Uh, for those who've read the history of Charles Spurgeon, He took on his first church when he was 16 years old. That's pretty amazing when I think about it. But what's even more amazing is within a few years, barely 20 years old, Charles Spurgeon has a church of nearly in the thousands. And he's barely 21 or 22 years old. We are never too young to be used for God's purpose in our lives. God builds confidence here into Jeremiah because he says, oh, I think I'm too young. And he says, no, you shall go, God says, and you shall speak on my behalf and you don't have to be afraid in that. And then he, get, then he goes on to reveal what this confidence is here. And he says, I am with you. You can go and you can speak and you don't have to be afraid because I am with you. God says, Jeremiah, I'm with you wherever you go. Whatever you speak and say from me, I'm with you in and through all that. There's the confidence for them. Confidence for Jeremiah to say, Jeremiah, you're not on your own doing this and carrying out this ministry. 
Now, just in case you might have had a thought here over the last few minutes, that might be sound like a real cushy job, maybe a real high-profile job, and maybe you've had high regard for Jeremiah, thinking, hey, this could be really good what you're getting into Jeremiah. Take note of what God says there, though, in this. Do not be afraid of them, and I will deliver you. Do not be afraid of them, and I will deliver you. Jeremiah, there will be some natural fear and there will be some danger as well because you need, be de- you need to be delivered from them as well. Important to sort of get here what's happening in these words. God's response here to Jeremiah makes it clear, makes it really clear that some of his callings, some of the things that God may ask us to do will be difficult and maybe even to go into hostile situations. God may do that sometimes. God's doing it today in some people's lives. God will call some people to go to very, very, very challenging circumstances. And you may even die in those challenging circumstances as part of God's call. God's doing that today as well. There are people today carrying out the mission of God and they are dying through carrying out that mission. And that's really all right if you do die. That's not a bad thing. Why is it a bad thing? Because Jesus is with you. You're carrying out his mission. And if you do die, then you'll be perfectly united with Christ forever. So don't ever think that the mission will be always just be safe and cushy and easy. History tells us that 11 of the 12 disciples all died martyrs' deaths. Carrying out the mission of God and died doing it. Willingly for the, uh, for the glory of Christ and carrying out his purposes. So God has called Jeremiah and he initially responds with fear and inability. And God responds with, you will do this and I will be with you to boost and grow Jeremiah's confidence in carrying out this mission. Okay, so as part of uh, the God's call to Jeremiah now, we want to see here, what's the message? What's the ministry you're going to carry out, Jeremiah, as we look at this today in, in sort of big picture form and in sort of detail over these next few weeks? And the first thing we see here as we see about this message is that God also equips us to carry out that message. Now, he's already told Jeremiah, I'm going to be with you, but he says even further and actually goes through some type of symbolic action here in verses 9 and 10 and does this. Then the Lord put his hand out and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I've sent you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. There's a real picture of God's grace here for Jeremiah. Not only does he say, I'll be with you, but symbolically he's touched his mouth, symbolising the, either the anointing or the enabling or the ability now to carry out this ministry. Probably it's the Holy Spirit coming upon Jeremiah and now empowering him for the prophet's ministry that God has appointed him to and called him to. That's a great thing to see. Not only does God call us and he's with us in his presence, but he enables us through the dwelling of his Holy Spirit as well. But this anointing, though, comes with a message for Jeremiah of what his ministry is going to look at, look at look like for these next um, 40 years of Jeremiah's life. So let's spend some time now thinking about the message that Jeremiah is going to carry out uh, in his ministry. Let's look closely at verse 10, what he says there. He says, See, I've set you this day... Over nations 
and over kingdoms. The big position, over nations and over kingdoms. To pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Here's your call, Jeremiah. Here's your ministry. Here's your message. And on the outset, I think it has a bit of a negative outlook, or actually quite a strong negative outlook when you think about it. The first few words there are to pluck up, break down, destroy and to overthrow. There's quite a negative sort of understanding taken with those, those things there. It's to pluck up, it's to break down, it's to destroy and it's to overthrow. And in the context of Israel right where they are now and the surrounding nations around about Israel, I can get that. I can understand that why God's talking this way. We need to remember where Israel's at as we think about this plucking, breaking, destroying and overthrowing. The spiritual life of Israel is nothing short of a sham. They are just going through the motions of just form and tradition when it comes to their spiritual life. Temple worship or church has simply for them become a social, cultural thing, not a heart devotion thing. And worse still for the Israelites, the people of Judah at that time, they have indulged what we call syncretism, or they've syncretized all these other false religions around about them. You might think, well, what does that word mean, Todd? In other words, what they've done is they've taken some of the Egyptian gods, they've taken some of the Babylonian gods, and they've taken some of the Assyrian gods and mixed it all together, like a Sunday night meal of leftovers. We throw everything together in the pot and you heat it up and you just get something out the other side. That's what Israel done. They've just grabbed a bit of everything and pulled it all into this religion and we call it syncretism. They've syncretized all these things. They aren't following the true God wholly and solely. They've got bits and pieces of everything. The Israelites are worshipping Baal, the fertility god, at this particular time. And that's a false religion where worship in the religion of Baal is having sex with temple prostitutes. All these people line up at the temple and they go and have sex with prostitutes for worship. And the whole concept of that is it's meant to excite the god of Baal who will make their land fertile and produce good crops. So Israel is indulging in that. They are also into child sacrifice. Sacrificing their children to the gods to appease them somewhat so again that they can receive good crops or good fortune. This is the gods that Israel has now begun to hook themselves to. A bit of this, a bit of that and a bit of this. All together and they've got this crazy religion going on. So we've got to understand here what God is doing then in this sense when all this is taking place. Israel's worship is corrupted to the core. They've built up this man-made structure of their own imagination in so-called worship of God. But in reality, it's nothing like the true worship of God that comes from the heart. What it really is, is hypocrisy. Or it's just acting at following God and not doing it in truth. We may say and do some things in the temple on Sunday or at church together. But then the rest of the week, our lives are no reflection of what we've done or spoken on Sunday. And unfortunately, I think sometimes the world looks in on the church in some places and it forms the same opinion at times. You say one thing on Sunday, but when you're out there on the street on Monday, you're a different person. 
Sadly, I think the culture sometimes relates to that. Sometimes they see uh, the church, some people at church, some churches, as it were, going through the motions of religion. They see or hear people turning up to church, singing some happy songs and raising their hands with a great big pleasant smile on their face. But then during the week, they see or hear of these same people who are raising their hands at church, potentially on the Sunday before, practising the same things that the world practises. They see these same people indulging in lying, cheating, getting drunk, sex with their partner, and that list could go on and on. They look at that sometimes. They say, I thought you were those people who love God on Sundays, but you're like the rest of the world on Mondays. The world doesn't always see a church that delights in God as sovereign and supreme and then shows that delight through joyful worship and obedience. So we ask ourselves, what is God going to do with this man-made construction of religion? As we think about what the Israelites have got themselves into. Well, God tells us here what he's going to do. God is going to pluck it. God is going to break it. God is going to overthrow it. And God is going to destroy it. God is going to come in in his own way and he's going to tear down this sham of man-made religion. He's going to pull it apart and let it all come crashing down into a pile of rubble. And you know what? That's the best thing to do sometimes when something's in a real mess. Knock it over, start again. What do you do if you've got a house full of white ants and they've riddled the whole house? You don't try and keep patching it up. If it's really bad, you knock it over and you start again. And this is what Israel's religion was like. It was riddled with white ants. It was corrupted through and through. You need to deconstruct it and then reconstruct it. God and his sovereignty knows exactly what the best thing is to do here. And his plan at this particular time is to come in and level Israel. Let Israel become a smoking ruin. God will orchestrate the total deconstruction of everything that Judah has put up into place. God's going to come and pull it all down. He's going to level it to the ground. Judah will be brought to a a, a point of absolute brokenness. And this is exactly where they need to be brought to so they can see the mess that they've constructed and tried to put in place. God says, I'm going to come and pull it all down. I'm going to actually rip it all apart. But there's two other words that God used at the end of that phrase as well. And this is where we see God's grace always there. Look at what also God says to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you will also build and plant. Yes, you'll pluck and break and destroy and overthrow. You'll do all that. But Jeremiah, you will also build and you will plant. God is saying, Judah, I am going to rebuild you. I am going to renew your heart so that you will worship me in spirit and in truth. And you will delight in me again as a faithful, patient God who lovingly sustains you. Judah, I will rebuild you. I will plant you afresh. 
I will repot you and I will put you in fertile soil where you will grow and flourish again, Judah. This is what I'm going to do. You will put your roots deep down into my love and my peace and then you will see me again as your glorious creator. I will build and I will plant you, um, Judah. That is God's grace there working through that. Yes, I'm going to do these other things, but that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is I will build you and I will plant you. So for us today, this is what we've got to see as we think about what's happening here. Sometimes, sometimes very often in our lives, God will deconstruct our lives. We will build all sorts of structures into our life that God sees, actually, that's not going to help you. It's going to be a hindrance. It's not going to help you to see me. It's not going to help you to worship me. I'm going to have to come in and deconstruct your life. Sometimes God will just pull down a room and it's not too bad. Sometimes God might come in and he might level the whole house to renew you again. We've got to see that's what God's grace does. He does deconstruct various areas of our lives. But he doesn't do that just for the sake of inflicting some pain upon us. He does that because he wants to dig out all the baggage that we're building our lives on and then begin to build it on true and proper foundations because then he will rebuild us and then he will plant us again to be fresh in him. That's what we're going to see in Jeremiah over these next few weeks and months. There'll be some deconstruction, but there'll be reconstruction as well. We're going to see what's happening in the lives of the Israelites. And we're going to see what's happening uh, in the life of Jeremiah. And we're going to see God remarkably work uh, miracles of grace through the nation of Israel. So today, perhaps God is deconstructing something in your life. Perhaps it's painful. It probably is painful. Deconstruction processes normally are. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Trust God that through the deconstruction process, that he has a plan and a purpose at the end to build and to plant and reconstruct you in a way that will build on proper foundations. Those foundations will be in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we uh, give you thanks and praise today as we start this book of Jeremiah. We start today, Lord, looking at... uh, the call, the man and his message. Uh, Lord, we look forward to anticipation as we work through Jeremiah. Father, we pray today you'll help us to see that, Lord, you are a God who deconstructs. You are a God that comes in and pulls things down in our life. Structures that we have built and structures, Lord, really that are blockages before you. And in your grace and your love and your mercy... Uh, you bring deconstruction to our lives and you pull these rooms down or you pull these houses down of our lives. So I pray today, God, help us to patiently go through that process, to trust you in that and to hold on to the promise that, Lord, you will build and you will plant. And I pray, God, that through that process that we'll be built strongly and planted deeply to grow lives that really do reflect and honour the glory of Christ. Lord, today I ask and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Um, these guys will listen to the song. I'll be up the front for a little while. If you do uh, want um, some prayer or have some questions about today's talk, uh, feel free to come forward and uh, see me then. Thank you.